Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon, um, everybody, uh, and welcome to the 14th episode of We Got Planning News uh, for You, the penultimate episode of our first season. Um, thank you all very much for sticking around with us. Um, thanks again for joining us today, and um, I'm delighted uh, to, be, to be back after a week off last week. Um, our discussion topic this week is ecology in planning. Uh, the more perceptive of you may have noticed, if you haven't put your earplugs in at my music taste, um, you may have noticed my attempt to reflect this in the pre-show music, although to appreciate that last one, you either need to speak Italian or to be a sufficient fan of Eurovision to appreciate that, that was Italy's entry in the 2017 Eurovision final in Kiev, which featured a dancing gorilla. Let me give you a clue, I don't speak Italian. Uh, but having played it, I've now won a bet with my Eurovision-loving Ukrainian wife, who I took to particular Eurovision final. Now, um, before we... Um, three usual reminders. Firstly, our weekly encouragement to, uh, to you all to consider making a donation to um, either the NHS Combined Charities page, nhscharitiestogether.co.uk, or a local charity of your choice. Um, please do keep the usual questions, comments, and banter flowing in the Q&A box. Uh, already, there's a barrage of, of comments, uh, mostly quite fairly adverse uh, to my music taste. Um, box at the bottom of your screen. I should add by the way that at least I'm in good company on Music Taste with Chris and Paul. Um, uh, and, and thirdly and finally please um, visit and follow our LinkedIn page as well as our shiny new website for which we've largely got Paul um, uh, to thank for arranging. Thanks Paul. Um, where there are links to the previous um, episodes as well as various other information. Um, can I as well actually just make a very quick thank you to all the very kind messages people have sent about baby Michael who was born a week ago today and in particular uh, I'd like to thank Paul, Mary, Chris and Sasha who sent Tetiana and our family the largest bunch of flowers I think I've ever seen. What, what generally lovely people um, you all are so uh, cheers cheers to you all. Um, now on to our special guest. Mary started off a, a much uh, much better tradition than we had previously of introducing the special guest first before ourselves so we're gonna, gonna keep that one um, and, and who better we have for this week's discussion topic of ecology than Tim Goodwin. Um, I'm sure all of you uh, probably know or have heard of Tim, Director of Ecology Solutions. I think it's fair to say um, something of a legend in the planning world. Tim, hello, uh, welcome. Um, can you tell us uh, where you are, what you're drinking and what special theme have you chosen for us for this week's episode? Thanks. I'm on the Gloucestershire, Worcestershire borders. Um, I'm drinking champagne. Uh, three reasons for that. One is if I said I was drinking anything else, everyone would know I was fibbing. <laughs> um, secondly, it's the first opportunity I've had to say congratulations to you. Um, and if you're going to toast a newborn, it's got to be with champagne. Um, and thirdly, um, this is the most eco champagne there is on the market. The bottle is 50% less, less glass. 
Um, the label is from recycled material, the print is water soluble, and the grapes are effectively organically grown. So that's as good as I could do. Theme ecology. Fantastic, Tim. Uh, that's, uh, that's superb. And thanks very much for those uh, kind comments. I should say, believe it or not, and I promise you, swear to God, it's true. We chose an ecology as, as our discussion topic before the government announced the consultation on reforms to the EIA and Habitats regime to be held in the autumn. Um, I think the second time, at least, that we've, we've announced our discussion topic only for the government then to provide some helpful fodder. And just in case that's indicative of some psychic powers on behalf of at least one of us, yes, we do all have lottery tickets for Saturday, and no, we're not telling you the numbers. Um, now, um, on that note, it's time to introduce the panel. Well, as, as I've said already, as you know, I'm Charlie Bannon of Keating Chambers, currently at home in, in South Kensington, London. And as for my drink, after much deliberation, I've gone for a, a G&T, um, channeling Mary, um, in, with pollination gin, which honours the biodiversity, and I'm always certainly going to pronounce this wrong, the, the Dovey Valley uh, in Paris, Wales, which is UNESCO Biosphere Reserve with an AONB and home amongst other things to ospreys and otters. The label says it's, it's flavoured with ingredients um, hand foraged from the valley in a, in a sustainable fashion. So, um, so cheers. Um, that's my choice. Over to you, Mary. Good evening, everybody. It's Mary from Town Legal and I'm in the woods in Wandsworth. And although I have a bottle of famous old grouse because it, it's all things birds in my homage to the great Mr. Goodwin, actually, I'm on the G&T. Cheers. <laughs> Chris. Hello, can you hear me, Charlie? We can indeed, absolutely. Our out and about reporter. Mm. Yes, I'm out and about. I'm away at an inquiry. And uh, no, we haven't gone to extreme measures for social distancing. I'm up on the roof of Barton Wilmore's offices at the observatory here at Ebbsfeet Garden City. And uh, what a fabulous view. I don't know if you can see all the construction work going on behind. Um, and uh, yeah, this is uh, an extraordinary place uh, to be. Uh, I'm in my inquiry, but we're not sitting today because my opponent's in the Court of Appeal. Uh, so we're having a day off, but I've had lots of conferences and um, I'm not drinking alcohol because I'm driving uh, back to the hotel, this evening at the team hotel, but I'm on the apple juice. This is Luke's tree, apple juice uh, from uh, Cranbrook in Kent. And um, I'll be driving very carefully home afterwards. Fantastic. I wonder whether you're the first QC to travel half the country to a digital inquiry. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, who's up next? Paul, I think you're next, aren't you? Yeah, sorry. I, it's very difficult to look at Chris and not think of the Iraqi Minister of Information <laughs> telling me <laughs> So cheers, cheers to you, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm drinking a, a fantastic brew uh, called Wiper and True from a small brewery in Bristol. This is said to be brewed with 100% renewable electricity, carbon neutral, and green gas. Uh, it's vegan, and I have to say, it's horrible. <laughs> I should also say that I'm losing a bet as well because having de decried myself as a Yorkshireman throughout the show, my uh, youngest son who was born in Lancashire insisted that I put a small token of Lancashire. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I am at the moment. Cheers, Luke. Cheers, Paul. Uh, Sasha, how are you doing? Good evening. Hi, Charlie. I'm in Landmark Chambers. I had the sensible idea to download a new operating system at 4.30 on my desktop <laughs> and I was told that it would take 78 minutes remaining so that posed a problem so I've legged it down to the conference floor 
So I don't <laughs> have anything to drink. You'd have the good sense to remember a Snickers bar, which I know. Now, actually, Charlie, you were elsewhere. I'll be able to finish it on my own. <laughs> Cheers, Sasha. Uh, it, it, this wouldn't be if we got planning news for you if there wasn't some last-minute um, IT um, gremlins, to say the least. We, we are nothing if not totally incompetent when it comes to computing. <laughs> um, but there we are. Uh, when Sasha's in charge of our IT, we know that something's gone wrong. Um, Great. Well, um, thank you all for introducing yourselves. And we're moving swiftly on to our uh, first topic this week, which is court case of the week. Actually, it's cases, because by request, we've been asked to cover one more. Um, Sash, you're going to kick off on this one. I am going to kick off. And the reason I was downloading is because I'm doing a high court case next week. And I was um, obviously Skype for business, getting ready. I'm slightly dreading the electronic bundle and my coordination of that, my sim submission simultaneously. But there's a first time for everything. We'll see. <laughs> Now, the case I'm going to talk about is for all of you in our audience who love the questions of intention and dedication under Section 31 of the Highways Act, which I know keeps many of us awake at night. But of course, the old chestnut has always been about what the intention of the landowner is, is and whether it's a subjective or objective test. And of course, we had Lord Hoffman in God Manchester who gave a quite clear view that it's an objective test. Well, as of last week, um, our learned colleague at the planning bar, Mr. Timothy Mould, sitting as a deputy high court judge, had to decide this decision. It's noteworthy, this judgment, and I'll rim Tim in the nicest possible way. Hearing date, 5th of December 2019. Date of decision, 10th of July 2020. So it's not only pins that are slightly struggling with this matter of timing. But the thing I wanted to bring up in that case, this involved of course, the two main objectors to Surrey's intention to change a footpath to a bridleway were two local residents who were concerned about this. And this all involves what you do when you build the M25 and the, effectively the effect of that on, on the route. And it was quite an interesting first ground because it involved effectively what you do in a tunnel, which the users were expected to pass, and whether it could be a bridleway when you either had to duck on your horse or get off your horse and whether it was a public nuisance. Um, Tim Mould took the view that that wasn't such a concern to be a public nuisance. But the point I really wanted to raise to all of those who do have issues of footpaths is of course, as I say, what the landowner is doing and the intention to do in relation to the bridleway slash footpath and the objective test. And what this case quite clearly makes, whilst it's an objective test, it is material to look at the subjective experiences of the particular individuals who are using that, that route. And as part of an objective assessment, it was right for the inspector to consider the specific evidence given by the users in reaching that judgment. So I think the, the takeaway point is for those that the, there is quite clearly under section 31 still a requirement to make an assessment based on the objective test. Thanks, Sasha. Uh, well, rather than follow up on, on this, um, by popular request, we've been asked to cover briefly another case, Shave and Maidstone Council. Um, I don't think I can say by whom we've been asked, otherwise the GPDR police will come and take me away in their blue helmets. So mm -hmm. I better not say, but if you're listening, thank you very much for the request. And please do keep requesting um, uh, if there's any other case you'd like us to cover. Now, this case was uh, about a planning application for the change of use of land to allow the stationing of 18 static holiday caravans. It wasn't operational development, you know, static caravans change of use which is important 
And the applicant objects on the basis they'd be in the middle of a, a what they said was a very nice piece of countryside in an unsustainable location. And members weren't given any details by the case officer about what the development looked like, the design, etc. because officers said that was irrelevant. What they said to members were that that sort of thing could be taken care of at the stage of applying for a um, caravan site license under the Caravan Sites Act uh, 1960. And Mr Justice Holgate said that was unlawful. Uh, what he said uh, was that planning issues such as design could only be dealt with at the planning stage and once permission had been granted that sort of thing was out with the scope of caravan legislation. Um, and planning conditions, he also said, could lawfully regulate design even in a case which is concerned only with the change of use application. Um, and it seems to me that's an important illustration of two things. One, the limitations of regulation under the Caravan Sites Act, and from what I understand, I don't do very much of that kind of work myself, but I gather um, what Mr Justice Holgate said was something of a surprise to those people who do that kind of uh, planning-related work. Uh, and secondly, the broad scope of conditions under the Planning Act, that conditions that might ordinarily be associated with uh, built form um, can actually be used in relation to change of use uh, proposals which have some kind of visual implications such as in particular um, caravans which which are physically there even if they're not development um, so so thanks for the suggestion that also congratulations um, to my friend Kate Ollie for uh, persuading Mr Justice Holgate to quash something not um, something especially common it, it might be said um, well, Charlie can I, I'm not going to let you get away saying you don't not your normal practice I remember when your whole practice was caravans oh absolutely <laughs> great fun though it was I'd probably, probably be that after zoning too uh, anyway no you will all be living in one <laughs> we quite Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, moving on to the Secretary of State Decisions of the Week. Um, uh, Kings Lynn, uh, first, the Knights Hill, Norfolk. Uh, Mary, you're going to tell us about this one to start off with. Yes, okay. So this one was about a, this is a proposal for about 600 um, units and a local centre and all that goes with it. And it was on a greenfield site and it was in an area where there was a five-year housing land supply. And the land was allocated in the adopted local plan, but it was, and this is the twist, it was proposed to be removed in the emerging plan. But that emerging plan had not been consulted upon, much less examined, and so actually attracted very little weight in the decision. There was present at this inquiry, and it was a recovered appeal, was the former MP and the current sitting MP, both of whom who spoke out against the inquiry, and presumably it was their local political interest that in fact sparked the recovery of an appeal relating to an allocated site. It's not the first time on the show that we've been talking about um, those circumstances. Um, it was also an occasion whether the uh, parish council was legally represented. And it's another great uh, report written up by a lady inspector. And the other particular interest, uh, I think, in this case, is that there were multiple heritage assets in the area, variously grade one, grade two, scheduled and ancient monuments. And I would say that the inspector's report is a sort of exemplar on assessments, firstly, of significance, and secondly, of clearly identifying where she found less than substantial harm, where that harm was within the spectrum. So on some occasions she found it was at the lower end of the spectrum and on other, one other occasion she found it was midway. And she then also discussed the 
question of whether there was a cumulative harm arising from multiple heritage impacts. And she said that where there was an interrelationship between the heritage assets, there was indeed um, some element of cumulative harm, which, which I think is interesting in itself. She was very clear that the public benefits weighed against the harm. And although she acknowledged the proposal wasn't necessary to achieve the five-year housing land supply, she said it was, quote, absolutely essential to the achieving the strategic spatial strategy. That was an expression that the Secretary of State agreed with. She attached significant weight to affordable, the affordable housing benefits. Uh, and she had no doubt that the public benefits, even though she gave those uh, heritage benefits considerable weight and importance were outweighed mm. by the um, by the housing basically mm. the hab regs were also engaged that's another little uh, quirk which I mentioned uh, with our good friend Mr Goodwin here um, mm. and additional recreational pressures were dealt with by um, quite uh, specific mitigation as you'd expect and the, the other just interesting thing is that although there was this five-year housing land supply the Secretary of State also agreed with the inspector that it was important that the housing would increase the flexibility of the, uh, of the supply under the housing delivery test. And that was a matter which was given significant importance. So even though there was this five-year supply, nevertheless, the provision of additional housing was very important. So that's me. Thanks, Mary. Sasha, uh, what's your take on the case? Well, I, I've been there, done that. I mean, I was, what I was going to say is it's obviously a very important notice to those of us who have clients who have sites allocated to not take them for granted that they'll survive the review of the plan. And I had that this earlier last year. So I think it's a really important point, as Mary said, is that if you get an allocation, do everything to take advantage of it because yeah. you don't know what the review will bring. And it, there's a lesson there. And I had unfortunate clients last year who had a 750 allocation that was knocked out in an emerging plan. And of course, when the, when, and Chris knows this from Cheltenham as well, of course, Cheltenham and Tewkesbury. I mean, it was like the hokey cokey of what sites were in, out, and yeah. back in again. So that's just a warning shot. Absolutely. And thanks, Sasha. Um, I, 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 I cracked up then because I think I got probably the most amusing comment I've seen on this show from uh, Andrew, who said that Chris is sitting there outside with his flags, looks like an extra from a Monty Python scene. <laughs> and now every time those flags blow, I keep, keep laughing. Well, um, actually, can I say Tim will get this reference? He reminds me slightly of Brian Hanrahan on the Art Ball, or was it the Hermes from 1982, yeah. counting planes in and out? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So it's bro, bro, is it Bruff Scott comment that I like? I think that's yes. <laughs> We're all going to get it when we're out and about. We should mention Sasha as well, but, but that, uh, and Mary, that that very comprehensive uh, uh, inspector's report that informed the Secretary of State's decision was by uh, Roshan Barrett. Um, uh, a really good inspector. Yes, on, excellent. Yes. On these issues, You're braver so. than me in saying the Christian name. Well, quite, yes, exactly. Well, hopefully I've at least pronounced either that or the Welsh Valley right. At least I got 50%, I hope. Um, let's move on to Muller Properties. Um, and uh, Paul, you're going to tell us about, about that case. Um, I, I absolutely despair. It's Roisin. Um, so, Guramina Mocha, Roisin, for your excellent uh, uh, decision. Uh, if I hadn't corrected that, I wouldn't be able to leave this house alive when my Irish wife... Um, uh, Sorry, uh, so, uh, 
So, uh, you to Roisin. Uh, right, okay, um, Muller Properties. C can I start off? Uh, this is a decision which granted consent for a mixed-use development involving 189 houses, uh, primary school sites, um, employment, a local centre, allotments, a variety of mixed-use elements. Um, but I want to just start it off by the Secretary of State, uh, who this week spoke to the Ho House of Commons Housing Communities Local Government Committee and said this, and this puts uh, this appealing perspective. He said, um, uh, there are a small number of councils in this country, said Mr Jenrick, who are failing to determine applications within the statutory period in breach of the law. That's maladministration. I would strongly urge those councils to raise their game because it's not fair, regardless of the application or applicant, to simply sit on applications. If you don't like an application, decide against it. Don't just sit on it. And then talks about a fair-minded person in Tower Hamlets, which some, some on the panel may know about. So not fair, don't sit on it, it's maladministration. Can I give you some dates? Application by Muller Properties in 2012. From number five, uh, now sitting in the west coast of Ireland, Fulcher Jerry. Uh, um, he, he had dealt with it up to that point, but I get involved in February 2018. We have an inquiry dealing with five-year land supply. Uh, that closes in front of David Morgan, uh, and um, so Panandar David, uh, and then we have no less than two years of sitting around waiting, during which time we get repeated requests from the Secretary of State every time Cheshire East update their, uh, their housing requirement uh, and their housing uh, position uh, statement rather. Uh, and then eventually we get a decision from the Secretary of State in July 2020. So just to repeat back to the Secretary of State, uh, that sort of delay is maladministration. It's not fair. If you don't like an application, decide it, please. Um, now, that's a little bit of a whinge about the delay, but it does throw into sharp relief the absurdity of a Secretary of State throwing mud at local authorities whilst also sitting on applications uh, for lengthy periods of time, seemingly without explanation, and sometimes just occasionally for political reasons. Um, I also stress, Chris is going to pick up the five-year land supply point. This, like the Kings Lynn case, was one where there was a five-year land supply, but the benefits outweighed the harm. Uh, not least because at the time that the application was launched, it was an urban extension, but by the time of the 2018 inquiry, there was development on three sides of this particular application. Um, but I'd stress about the value of the mixed-use development, and that was given some significant weight by uh, Secretary of State. And I should note, this is a five-year land supply by the time the Secretary of State determined it, but back in February 2018, when the inspector had heard the inquiry, the inspector concluded that there wasn't a five-year land supply and the presumption was engaged. It does the system no credit to sit on applications for this long and it does the system no credit when an inspector determines an application on a particular basis which is completely OTOs by the time the Secretary of State actually decides it. I feel better for that, that was cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers Paul. Chris, what's your take on the five-year supply angle? Well, uh, I've got a few things to say about that but before I do, I just want uh, everybody to know that that isn't the longest ever decision by the Secretary of State in recent, uh, recent years. Uh, there was a decision at Darn Hall, that's the scheme I was involved in, the application went in even earlier. The first inquiry was 2014. We successfully quashed the first decision and uh, we ended up having three inquiries and the final decision was in November 2014. And 19 over five years for a decision on 180 houses and only recovered because it was in a neighborhood plan area absolutely appalling and for Jendrick to say uh, what he said he doesn't understand anything about how applicants might want to extend the time 
because they've got to overcome certain difficulties with the application. So I completely agree with all that you say, Paul. Uh, but let's hope now, because he's feeling the heat because of Sasha, the Secretary of State's going to start issuing decisions a lot quicker. Now, has Sasha taken a vow not to take it, not to change his coat until the Secretary of State resigns? Is that what this is about, Sasha? <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad I left London because I was going to have to smell it, given how long he's been wearing it. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, no, carry on. I think you should wear it for five years as a protest. <laughs> um, so five-year land supply, what's really interesting is we have a Secretary of State here endorsing the view that despite an up-to-date plan, and despite the fact there was a five-year land supply granting planning permission, there's been lots of occasions when the Secretary of State has said, grant planning permission when there's not a five, when there is a five-year land supply but the plan is often out of date for example the weekly campus case but here we've got a, a local authority with an up-to-date plan and, and the numbers are pretty enormous actually in paragraph 22 of the secretary of state's decision um, in paragraph 23 the council's supply was estimated by the secretary of state to be between 15,198 and 17,000 432. Now, this is half a county. That's how Cheshire divides. But what an extraordinary amount of supply to then say, well, you know what? We need a bit more. And I think that's an indication of how important delivery is. And I completely agree with Paul. That there was some economic development with this. I think anything tagged with a bit of economic development right now is almost likely the fly through. Those are my comments. Thanks, Brian Chris. Hanrahan, Hanrahan, just outside Beirut. <laughs> before, before we move on to our next segment, uh, next we should probably know, I think it's the second week running, or maybe the second week I've been involved running, that Paul's discussed a, a case of his that, that he's won. Um, Rumour has it that he's now got a clause in his contract uh, <laughs> that requires us uh, only to, to get him to, to speak about his victories. Um, we, we asked the show's producer to comment earlier, but presumption was, was busy. Um, so I you know he's like an absolute A-list I mean every time I walk past the RCJ and see Johnny Depp and Amber Heard I think if any of you are aware of any cases that Paul happens to lose please write to the rest of us personally uh, and we'll make sure we'll have a special discussion topic on them all I can't think uh, of any <laughs> And if you're an inspector, considering that, just think, we could send you a whole Christmas hamper. <laughs> <laughs> that's if, a joke, if, by the way, that's thought, a joke. If you thought my bouquet of flowers was big, just imagine the one you'll get for that. Anyway, on, on the subject of special discussion topics, we're going to move um, to our topic for this week, ecology uh, and planning. Um, uh, should Brexit provide the opportunity now to rid the planning system of of the overly complex system of European ecological control, or should we stick with what we got because of adequate protections, or is the answer somewhere in between? Well, Chris, you're going to lead this discussion, and, and Tim, before we do um, the interview that I'm going to do with you a little bit later, obviously, uh, please do um, shed, shed um, your perspective on, on this. So, Chris, over to you uh, to kick us off on this. Okay, can you still see me? We can still see you, we can still hear you. Okay, my interconnection, internet connection is a bit vague, but um, the position is that we all find the European constraints extremely difficult to deal with, and a lot of this arises out of the Waddensee judgment uh, of the European Court, which um, required a particularly high threshold in terms of the potential impact uh, on ecology uh, in relation to new development. 
Now, we had a domestic solution to that, which was the Dilly Lane judgment, if you like to call it, or Hart uh, Council. And in respect of that, there was um, a very clever judgment by Mr. Justice Sullivan, as he then was, take into account mitigation um, in the process of deciding whether an appropriate assessment is needed. We, we've now switched to a position where the European Court has made a further decision in the people over wind and said that mitigation can't be taken into account. So that creates all kinds of difficulties, although ultimately simply requires an appropriate assessment. And some of this is very unwelcome. The government is clearly looking at this and um, one possible benefit, one minor benefit from Brexit might be that we'll, we are freed from some of these constraints. And um, so I just wanted to, to ask other panel members what they, what they felt about that and um, who would like to comment? I, I'm happily comment um, because I remember the days of Hart, which was a case I did in front of um, Jeremy Sullivan. Uh, and it seems to me that this is an opportunity for us to do our own thing. But whilst doing our own thing, we can perhaps um, put, a, as I think government wants, a more positive spin on ecology. And when I say spin, I don't mean that in an artificial way. I think that us Brits have, we hold animals, flora and fauna near and dear to us. And I don't see that shedding the European um, straight jacket means that we're going to abandon uh, all things good. On the contrary, it's an opportunity. And I think the Environment Bill is trying to seize that opportunity. Mary, I couldn't um, agree more, to be honest. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to keep what's good um, and build on it. Uh, I think what's happened, certainly with recent judgments in terms of Sweetman and Hulan, it, the whole process has just got more convoluted, more hoops to go through, but it doesn't actually mean that we get better decisions out of it. You know, that's probably for me the key. Can I just throw in, Chris, um, I mean, this is slightly parroting what I was told 30 years ago when I was at university. One of the difficulties that we have is that we have a very different system from the civil systems which appertain in most European countries, which are very much code-driven in terms of the law, but more importantly, they're dealing with outcomes. So it's you identify what the outcome is. The outcome is do no harm to ecologists. We take a more um, black-letter approach, which is, you can do what you want unless it's forbidden by law. And because of that, we're, we're grafting a European civil system onto a British uh, a jurisprudential uh, uh, legalistic approach. And that's, that's not been a happy working environment. What it's done is just added more and more layers of complexity. And as we've had more and more cases which haven't properly um, uh, 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 moved directives into, into domestic law, we've just added more regulations more complexity so that we end up with process after process rather than going will this development hurt the bats will this development actually affect this piece of, of uh, ecology and if we can divert some of our energy from uh, looking at the legal context and jumping through all these ludicrous hoops of the habitats regs etc which really don't achieve very much apart from creating paper and look at well what are the benefits then I think that's a potentially good thing that said, what we have done over the years has been to elevate the importance of ecology in a way it just wasn't important 30 years ago in terms of the decisions that I was seeing when I was in pupillage. So there's good and bad, but I think we've gone way too far. 
Well, well, I was going to say, I think my biggest criticism would be, you know, the distinction of, of value. I mean, we we just we find it so difficult to really genuinely assess value. Obviously, someone with Tim's abilities can, but with us, every EIA we read tells us how important things are and how how they need to be protected and we know that's not the case there is a grading of importance and i think the current legislation loses that frankly it's indiscriminate in evaluation and assessment and we need to find a way where we really value that that needs to be valued and we don't with those that doesn't need to be valued that's my take I mean, I agree with all of that. And a note of caution I'd add is, of course, it's, we've got to be so careful that the baby isn't thrown out with the bathwater. And the, I think there's a danger. Yeah, uh, you particularly have got to be careful about that. But now we've just got to be so careful that, um, you know, particularly with, dare I say, some of the individuals um, uh, close to, to government, um, that, that we don't sort of swing from one radical extreme to, to the other. Um, because, I mean, it seems to me that, for example, in relation to EIA uh, and possibly SEA too, actually, the answer is not to deregulate in the sense of bringing outside of environmental assessment um, development that comes currently within it, but just making the EIA process uh, more focused. Um, so we don't have, you know, rooms full of environmental statements with green plus plus, red minus, question mark minus, which is a bit like a sort of uh, the marking of an essay at an ancient university about 30 years ago, um, but instead a focus on environmental outcomes, as, as you've, you've all said. Um, so it's, to my mind, it's about how environmental assessment is done rather than whether it's done. Um, and also, we mustn't forget um, Habitats Directive, water quality, uh, waste, which are more about outcomes and objectives. I, I, the impression I get is that they're also potentially in the firing line of, of Barnard Castle's favourite visitor. And we have, to, we have to be very careful that um, those that, that legislation, much of which is for the good, for example, you know, the, the water quality in the Thames is an awful lot better than it was um, when I was a young lad. Um, well, I think I still am, but still. Um, and uh, the abstraction uh, uh, in places like the River Test and Itchen, uh, which was causing real harm to protected um, salmon and other species in there, uh, that's been uh, carefully regulated. And we've just got to be very, very careful that um, in the spirit of, of making EIA better, um, uh, we don't allow um, those protections to be, to be lifted. I think what we might do, guys, if, 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 if you're happy, is should we segue into our interview with Tim? Because a couple of questions I have for Tim that um, really touch upon this issue, and then we can all sort of comment on those. And um, Tim, perhaps first up, before we get on to policy and Mary's point, um, just to put this point in sharper focus, what would, you know, if you were the Prime Minister, um, uh, what, what would habitat protection, first of all, let's take that first, in the UK, um, look like in 10 years' time? And, and how do you think that might differ from the reality, if at all? Um, I, I think from my point of view, there, there are some key things that, that I want to change. I should probably say, for goodness sake, if I was Prime Minister, uh, to coin a a phrase from a very good friend and someone that you know very well, but I won't mention him. Um, you'd have to head for the hills, to be honest, because it would all be a bit of a disaster. But I, I'd want to move away from the focus uh, uh, process that we've just mm. talked about. And I'd want, to, I'd want to be much more outcome driven in ecology terms. Um, I, I, I think this, the biggest thing that I want most of all is that ecology and biodiversity is seen as adding real weight to the planning process. 
Because how many of us, you know, we go to inquiry and I argue with someone else who objects to something, but the inspector only sees it in terms of an objection or a no objection or the weight of the evidence on that basis. What I'd really like is decisions that come forward um, where biodiversity are given proper weight and consideration in the end result. I think if we got to that, we'd have moved an awful long way. Um, you know, here's another example of that. How many of you have ever worked on a project where Natural England has actually written a letter of support? <laughs> ah, so I don't think so. No, I've had one in my entire career. Um, it's either an objection or it's I've removed my objection. Even when you've got a scheme that they say is exemplar, why are they not writing to the decision taker saying this should be given great weight? We support this type of application. So for me, that's the, the fundamental change that I would like to see. Um, in reality, will it be there in 10 years time? I've got my fingers crossed, Charlie, but I think it doesn't just need a change in how perhaps the government and decision uh, takers look at it, but the conservation lobby need to, to think differently from how they currently are. Everything is framed in protectionist terms. We've got to look at how we actually move forward from that. So for me, they would be the things that I would want to see if, if I was PM, Charlie. So, so really what you're talking about is maybe either port law or a policy giving great, what, great weight to environment, for ecological benefits effectively. So it can be a, it can be a game changer in favour of, of, of a scheme as opposed to simply something like a shield. Like you're, you're, more often than not, Tim, you'll be used as a shield to say you shouldn't refuse us. on, on yeah. I mean, we, we had... Charlie, oh. the, sim the simplest thing we could do is having national policy a presumption in favour of schemes that bring forward significant biodiversity gain. Yeah. I mean, it, is, it really doesn't take a lot to change that emphasis in policy. You know, we've got that in sustainability terms, and obviously ecology is part of that, but I'd like to see biodiversity and ecology pulled out and a presumption in favour of those schemes. And developers would take that on board. Or perhaps even a sort of, you know, as, as there is now with design, isn't there, in paragraph whatever, 130 something, 132 is it, the framework where great weight is given to, to excellent and innovative design. It, it wouldn't yeah. take a genius to, to write a sentence that could say the same thing for ecology. I mean, we were, we were discussing last, I'm, I'm loath to say this because it gives Paul another chance to refer to a victory of his, but um, uh, we did a, I did, my suggestion was a straw. Get over it. Which of us barristers, he does occasionally lose cases, so I'm told, but um, uh, which of us barristers have done a case where ecological considerations got the case home? I, it wasn't simply a, a, quite a reason for refusal that we had to overcome, but actually it was the, diff, it, it was the benefit that led to permission being granted. And then of course, Paul's got one example. I, I don't think, I can't remember having done one myself. I think, I think I'm right in saying that most of the others at least haven't um and um waiting for chris to come off mute here he is <laughs> um, <laughs> well, i don't know about that charlie i think when you produce a sang and that sang uh when you produce a sang and that sang is uh part of the development and it's granted i think you could count that as an ecological win well sort of but only in the sense that it prevents it, it avoids other developments from going down on ecological reasons so it's again it's really it's a it's a plus that's the flip side of a minus somewhere else 
Um, and there was that. Trading is it a plus? It's a yeah. plus. <laughs> but I mean, these are all the exceptions. I think Tim's point is well, the norm should be that there's an opportunity for, for proposals that achieve uh, significant environmental betterment, uh, ecological betterment, um, to go ahead on that basis. That's your point, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, Charlie. Absolutely. What about next? Can I ask a question? I mean, do you think that the net biodiversity gain that the Environment Bill is seeking to yeah. legis uh, legislate for, do you think that will lead to uh, inspectors and decision makers uh, all over um, giving more weight to gain, to net gain? And, and would it ought to lead to developers uh, at the outset asking themselves, how can we achieve a biodiversity net gain? And I, I, being an eternal optimist, like to think that the development industry also realise that um, biodiversity net gain on their own site or nearby is a winner. I mean, it sells, you know, good sites, good housing. It 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 sells, makes the profit for them. Yeah, I think um, Mary, from my point of view, I, I think that whole net gain issue will mean that inspectors are considering it in a slightly different way at appeal. I'm also decision uh, makers just more generally. I think for me the worry is at the moment the way that the bill is phrased is okay um, from what I can understand from it I'm quite happy with that but in terms of the the metrics that go with it i.e how do we how do we actually measure the net gain I am really concerned about that. You know, there are still flaws in the metric. Um, different local authorities are bringing in different metrics. So to give you an example, one of my current schemes, running that through the DEFRA metric, I get a 2% plus at this moment in time. Running exactly the same figures through the Warwickshire metric, I get an 8% loss. Mm. So, I don't think it's going to do what we think it's going to do because I think people like you and people like me, I'm still going to be in the witness box and you guys are still going to be arguing amongst yourselves about, you know, is this really a net gain of 8% or 12% or is it actually a loss of 2%? It's just going to be another thing to argue about, to be honest. I, I, I think the key for me, metrics, all of that is a positive yes, but let's use it as guidance. Whereas what I see at the moment already is, is ecologists looking at the metric as absolute measures. Mm. You know, oh, you, you only hit 8%. And I can't take into account the management or something else. I don't want to do that because the metric tells me I've got to do it this way. I think if we implement it on that basis, well, you know, let, let's all have fun over the next couple of years, but it's certainly not going to move nature conservation forward. So Tim, what you, what, if I understand you correctly, what you're suggesting is, you know, you have a policy that, that is, um, you know, emphatically supportive of development, subject to other things, of course, has, has uh, significant ecological betterment, but that's not done simply through an algorithm, um, through the, as net, net biodiversity gain is, that's relevant, but the other sort of qualitative or subjective factors that have more judgment in, they're relevant too in forming that overall judgment. Absolutely, Charlie. I mean, you know, what about professional judgment? You know, the ecology profession has spent the last five years trying to move itself forward and talk about being a profession. And then we, you know, as a whole, we back, we back something where 
professional judgment is going to be taken out of it. I mean, that, that seems to be ridiculous. Um, and I don't really believe that you can make something like ecology and biodiversity fit a mathematical formula. You know, it's not chemistry. If you mix A and B and, you know, you get C. But ecology is much more nuanced than that. We're still learning about species. We're still learning about habitats. Mm. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a role for a metric, but it's got to be as guidance, not as an absolute. And that's, as I say, where I'm worried. Yeah. Maybe the metric needs to be the starting point, but not necessarily the, always the end point. Yeah. Good point, Mary. A couple yeah. more questions for me, uh, Tim, and then um, uh, over, over to, to the others to, to ask a few more. What, um, I ask, um, can I just ask Tim to go over to the Landscape Institute and have a word about Glivia? <laughs> oh yes quite <laughs> um yes more of that uh, perhaps in another episode actually um um i know tim that you do work in other component parts of uh, of the uk such as, as northern ireland where you know, we've done a case on different sides um what do you think um wales scotland northern ireland uh, do better than england uh, in, in relation to ecology and, and what can we learn from them if at all um well, let's take let's take Northern Ireland because I, I you know I do a significant amount of work um, over in Northern Ireland. I mean, I'm, if it wasn't because of the situation we've got now, generally I'm over there every couple of weeks. Mm. One, one of the big things I think that is different over there is that you can sit down with a statutory authority and you can actually discuss what's required. What do we need? What surveys do you think are necessary? What are your concerns? If you contrast that with natural England, and this is not having a swipe at natural England at all, but first of all, you, you know, clients have got to pay for a DAS process, which gets them in front of natural England and they, they, they put their money on the table. Mm. But actually, have any, have any of you ever looked at what comes back on, on a DAS, you know, on a DAS form? Because there's a little footnote at the bottom that says this is not the opinion of natural England. So although you're paying for it, yeah. it gives them a complete, you know, get out clause from any discussion you've had. Yeah. Um, if you look at the, the guidance they give you, you know, if you, if, you, if you broaden that more to ecological assessment or EIAs, what do, what do natural England's response is, is always the same to every single application that comes forward. Look at designations, look at our standing advice. Owen, we'd be looking for mitigation. Well, how, how does that help the process move forward? So I think Northern Ireland does do that better. It's much easier to go in, sit down and chat. Um, I think in Scotland, um, they, Scottish Natural Heritage is still producing guidance notes, which I do think are helpful because as we learn new things, that moves us forward. And that's something that, Natural England have stopped doing in truth, um, probably be, you know, because there isn't the staff and the resources available. So there's a couple of things in, in other areas of the UK which I believe are done better, but it's a case of looking at all of them and trying to get a comprehensive and consistent approach, I think. Mm, absolutely. Um, and um, final question for me, at least Easter now. Um, I, I saw on your website, you know, you've, you've, been, you've been doing this for 38 years, I, I think now. Uh, two years less than I've been on this planet. Um, uh, stop <laughs> bragging, stop uh, bragging. Thanks, thanks. 
Thanks going, so much for that, Charlie. Thanks very much. You'll kill me later. Um, tell us this, uh, Tim. With all of that experience, what project um, are you most proud of working working on in ecological grounds? Okay, um, I'm going to go for two for totally different reasons. Um, first one, um, specifically on ecology, it would be the developments uh, at Rugby, so the urban extension to Rugby and then the other side of the A5, the rail freight interchange for Prologis. Um, totally different approaches on the, on the big shed size side, nothing is going to survive. So there it was looking at creating a, a huge new nature reserve. The Wildlife Trust got, got involved, it's very enthusiastic and it's been a great success. On the urban extension side, it was building ecology through the development. And Natural England considered it an exemplar project because it really did deliver on their green infrastructure. And going back to my previous point, although they didn't object to the application, they didn't support it either, even though it was delivering you know, what they wanted. So I think from an ecology point of view, that is, is probably what I'm proudest of. Um, if I take a very selfish look at projects, then it would have to be Exminster. Um, I did an original uh, planning appeal with Chris. Um, that got challenged in the High Court initially and then ended up in the Court of Appeal. Um, to my knowledge anyway, it's the only appeal court case where the judges effectively had to look at my evidence and decide whether it was correct, incorrect, whether I gave uh, the inspector at the inquiry the right advice in relation to that. So given I got the thumbs up uh, from the Court of Appeal, um, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. Nice one. Quite right. Quite right too, Tim. And a very yeah, thanks, Mary. That was. Um, right, let's, let's go to the others for questioning. Paul, you're first up. Um, have you got a question for, for Tim? Yeah, be before I do, um, uh, Tim, I, I was very struck with what you said in relation to uh, playing ecology is very much more of a positive. Um, last year, we lost uh, a friend, Phil Resch, uh, who was a partner at FPCR. And every proof of evidence Phil used to put, he would start off by saying what awards his firm had won, including one called Conkers, which I'd love to go to one day, because in my mind, it's some sort of place like Mary's got behind her. But when I said, take that out your proof, the inspector doesn't want to know about your awards. He said, absolutely not. I'm proud of this. This tells the world exactly what I achieve. And he was right to do that. So I'm going to slightly alter the question I intended to ask you, Tim, which is, why do we underplay ecology? It's interesting. It's something that we all have a view about. When I asked you by email what, what the bird was earlier on, and I guessed it as a skylark, I don't know if anybody can see it uh, on, on that. I was interested to know, I'd spent 10 minutes looking at British birds to try and work out what it, what it might be. It's an interesting subject. Why do we underplay it so much? Um, I think that's the fault really of um, A, ecologists, B, the, the whole profession, uh, the, the, the way that ecology became a subject. I mean, you're quite right, Paul, you know, every member of the public likes something about ecology, you know, whether it's they see a fox, whether they see a deer, whatever it is. But we did go down this route of a sort of protectionist approach and that switched off big business. I mean, it just did because big business don't see it in the way that Mary, you know, 
hopes that they will see it. They've seen it as something that they get clobbered with, something that they have to be dragged through to get through hoops. So we definitely went wrong somewhere. And if, any, if anybody out there, you know, there'll be loads of ecologists and, and conservationists who no doubt will watch this now or watch it in the future. But you know, what I'd say to them is we've had all of this legislation We've had all of this policy, which is all based on protection, but actually we're still losing species and habitats at an alarming rate. Why? Because we don't see it as something that's important. We need to make those changes, either to policy or to statute. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Mary. Um so I was skipping around. Mary, have you got a, a, another question? Yes, I, I have got a question. And actually, it sort of echoes some of the comments made by Chris, Paul, Wendy and Laura. Um, my question is this. Are Natural England uh, and indeed uh, planning authorities sufficiently well resourced to deliver on these biodiversity issues, whether to overcome, you know, um, nitrate issues on the south coast or strategic rams measures uh, protecting the Essex coast? It's a resource, um, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Mary, the, the, the very quick answer um, is no, they're totally under-resourced. Um, it, it's got to a point now where, you know, some of my, some of my friends that, that work in, say, Natural England, who I've known for years, now have to comment on planning applications across three counties. Well, I mean, that, how could you possibly review all of the applications that, that fall within, you know, supposedly their remit. Um, I think what that's led to is just a tick box exercise, which as I say, goes back to this whole point of not looking at the weight to be given. You're simply, yep, yeah, I'll tick that. Yep, yeah, I'll tick that, that's okay. Yep, yeah, oh, I've got a problem there. And it, it, until we have a statutory authority that's well-funded, we are going to have delays in the system. We are going to have ecology being taken just on its, its sort of basic merits, but without any real thought in the planning system. So rather than the government, I mean, there, there were these announcements about, you know, pilot schemes for this. Don't let's spend five million on collecting more data in a different way. Let's spend the five million, let's spend whatever we've got and actually building up a proper statutory authority that has the time to engage with consultants and developers and everyone else in the planning process. And much the same for most local authorities. You know, when have you ever seen a local authority ecologist at a senior standing? Mm. You, know, I've, I, you know, one of the things that, that I've always maintained is I, I've been very, very lucky. I've been one of those few ecologists who have been paid exceptionally well for what I do. Um, I've managed to to, to deliver ecology as a big profession. But where do you see that generally? Now, I mean, to me, it's shocking that the ecologist is someone still at the bottom end of the pile. You know, they're not given a big role within a planning authority. You know, for me, that's heartbreaking because I want them to be up there challenging some of the, some of the things that I say, you know, rather than perhaps be getting an easier ride. Um, so yes, absolutely, definitely, we need more money, we need more resources, it would help the whole system. But we do need to look at them, what they actually do. 
I wonder whether actually that's another way, place where we could, uh, we could learn from Scotland. I, as I think you know, Tim, I'm on the, the board of JNCC, the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, which is the sort of yeah. UK advisor on um, uh, uh, biodiversity matters. Uh, and they've been faced with huge, really, really tough cuts um, over the uh, last few years. Uh, because it's easy to cut, uh, frankly, no, you know, no votes gain, or very few votes are going to be lost, uh, certainly in England to reducing um, funding to, to, to organisations like that, to county ecologists, etc. In Scotland, the Scottish natural heritage have made huge publicity. Yeah, if you've got nature.scot, you've got uh, re re very, very inspirational leadership. Um, and, and I don't know, I'm just saying this. Um, and, and it's built up ahead as PR steam in Scotland. And it's now sort of become a, a sexy issue in the way it wasn't politically. And I, I just wonder whether there might be one or two lessons to learn or there are so even kind of people to recruit who could instill that uh, sort of injection of, of profile and publicity, uh, which will make it perhaps a little bit harder to, to, to cut budget for, for ecologists uh, in various public authorities, central and uh, local. Um, that might be one way. Anyway, Chris, you've got a question, and then Sasha. I'm conscious of the time, Tim, so I'm just going to ask you, uh, which is your favourite British species? <laughs> Probably otters, Chris. That's it. You know, Thanks very much. just different, <laughs> playful, great. They'd, I mean, who doesn't like looking at a picture of an otter, for goodness sake? You know. <laughs> Tarka, just call him Tarka, Tim Tarka. Barry, if you start that, we're going to fall out. <laughs> I thought you mispronounced my surname. What's your question? Charlie, I'm going to forego my question because of time, but I'm going to make a comment. And I'm going to say to Tim, I'm, and I want to say to our audience that I'm due to cycle next week from Lansing to John O'Groats. And I have had an almighty problem finding accommodation that would accept me and my dog. So I want to say on this topic, let's be more friendly to pets and dogs so we can take them with us on holiday and enjoy their company. Because in my judgment, they're only a benevolent and good companion. Extremely well said. And Sasha, I hope you've got your fitness up and you won't be still peddling when it comes to next Thursday. You'll be somewhere in Milton Keynes or... or yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Good. I'm I'm getting, I'm pouring down your shirt. Probably the same shirt you're wearing now and as you have done last week. <laughs> <laughs> so, hope you finish in time. Uh, you've got to be back by 5pm next week. Now, next up before we finish, we've got Champion of the Week, Mary. You've got I've two got two champions. First champion is Town Legal LLP because we've been nominated along with others, but we've been nominated for the Estates Gazette's Legal Award. So well done team town. Second uh, shout out is for an inspector who did a written rep appeal. And in that written rep appeal, he called out the council's validation requirements as being quite unreasonable. The council wanted all sorts of uh, ridiculous things on an application for mixed flexible uh, use. It was simply a change of use application and they wanted far too much and he called them out. So well done. Fantastic. Thanks, Mary. Paul, nudge of the week. Uh, yeah, my nudge of the week is for uh, the parliamentary draftsmen who presumably haven't slept for the last few days. Uh, <laughs> and I have to say it shows um not only do we have amendments to, to the youth classes order which you're going through and we now have price in a priceless fashion class e which i will forever pronounce classy 
uh, uh, which replaces class A and bits of class B. But we have amendments to allow the raising of roofs, the redevelopment of vacant plots, etc. Uh, and if you want to see a model of how complex our legal system is, look at uh, the Town and Country Planning General Permitted Development uh, England Amendment Order Number 2 of 2020, Article 3. It goes on for about 400 pages and I understand almost none of it. Well done to the Parliamentary Draftsman. Lots of work there for us. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Um, well, week ahead, um, well, the biggest question for the weekend is will we um, see in the next few days the planning policy paper setting out uh, the proposals for the promised radical root and branch reforms planning system? Well, um, watch this space. Um, certainly, we'll, we'll be looking to discuss it next week if it is out in time. Um, also, the High Court and Court of Appeals current term ends on the 31st of July, which is uh, towards the end of next week. They don't return to the 1st of all, October. Um, and often there's a flurry of judgments at the end of term as the judges seek to get cases off their desks before going away. Uh, will these judgments include the hotly weighted judgment on the remedy in the successful challenge to the lead size nations plan? Who knows? I'm not nudging the judge again. No, um, not after last time. You're getting that in 2028. <laughs> at least. At least. <laughs> but if anybody, if anybody is involved in or affected by a judgment, any other cases that, um, that haven't been delivered, had judgment yet, um, keep an eye out because they may well come out by the end of next week. That's all for us for today. Thank you all again for, for joining us and particularly to Tim for, for, for sharing Thank your you, insight. Pleasure. Really Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot. See you again next week for our season finale. Um, Thursday the 30th of July, episode 15. Um, I say we're, we're deliberately holding fire on announcing what we're going to cover, given that there's probably an awful lot to be announced between now and the next few days. But we'll let you know early next week, as we always do, uh, both on our LinkedIn page and on, on our website, have we got planning news for you.com, um, and also by the usual email. Please don't forget donations to NHS, another charity of your choice. Sasha's far too modest to mention that he's raising money for, for the Samaritans on uh for this cycle um, so can i just endorse that and um sasha if, if you're interested email sasha and he'll give you the um the relevant details for that hope you i think we'll, we'll put it on the web page yeah, we'll put it on the web very good point paul put it on the web page so you don't need yeah. to bother sasha. and uh please do think about uh, donating for him and let's hope he finishes in time for next week when we'll see you thursday 30th episode 15 5 p.m Cheers. Have a great Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.